Good morning. You can be seated. And then while you're getting seated, turn to Psalm 1. Psalm chapter 1. As has already been expressed, welcome to Christ Community Church. I'm uh, thankful for you guys and love all of you. Um, my dad has been a pastor here for 28 years, and I am 28 years old. So you guys are all I've ever known, and I do love you guys. And having prepared to preach two sermons now from this pulpit, I'm very thankful, and I do want to make mention of this. I'm very thankful for Dr. L and my dad, Pastor Kevin. Uh, we believe sitting under the preaching of God's word is the most important part of each of our weeks. And I'm so thankful for the labor that they both put into bringing us Christ-centered preaching week in and week out. And finally, I'm thankful for this elder series uh, and the privilege it is to preach a sermon uh, with the other lay elders every August. So Psalm 1, and we're going to start in verse 1. Holy Scripture says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that, are, that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word now, we pray that the gospel be proclaimed with clarity and plainly. Sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. We pray this all in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So the next five weeks, we're going to move through this lay elder series on Christ in the Psalms. Um, and a quick background on the Psalms itself. So the book of Psalm is made up of, it's comprised of five books. Uh, book one being chapters one through 41, and that'll be the entirety of our series. But the term psalm comes from the Greek word for song or hymn, and the Hebrew word for praises. So meaning the book of psalms were written as poems to be sung. And psalms, just like poems, are read differently than normal prose. So during the week, I work for a chemical manufacturer, and this past winter, we brought on a large new customer. Uh, I found that when you bring on a, custom, a new customer, you begin to take interest in what they like and do. Some may call it building rapport. Uh, so the champion of our project was the director of quality for this manufacturer, and he's a truly unique individual. Um, He'd compete for that guy from the Dos Equis commercials for the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> and ask me more about that later if you guys want to. But 
One day, I had a meeting with him and noticed he was clean-shaved instead of his normal beard. Not like Mike's beard, but close. And when I made a comment about it, he responded, yeah, I got a gig this weekend. Come to find out, he's a Buddy Holly impersonator. So being bored in the 90s, I had no idea who Buddy Holly was. But quickly did some research on him so I could be semi-educated when I asked my customer how the concert went. During my research, I came across the song American Pie by Don McLean. You may remember it from those old Chevy commercials. Bye-bye, Miss American Pie. <laughs> Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was right. So American, song, American Pie is a song written like a poem. Uh, and when reading poetry, we instinctively interpret poetry by allowing later lines to fill in the gaps of earlier lines. So American Pie is an example of this. The song American Pie starts out, and I'm not going to sing it because I'm not a good singer. But a long, long time ago, I can still remember how that music used to make me smile. And I knew if I had my chance that I could make those people dance, and maybe they'd be happy for a while. Then it continues, but February made me shiver, every paper I'd deliver, bad news on the doorstep, I couldn't take one more step, I can't remember if I cried when I read about his widowed bride, but something touched me deep inside the day the music died. So with poetry, we also instinctively use historical hints that a poet provides to reveal the meaning of his words. And American Pie is a good example of this. The song starts out, and we know it's a young man delivering newspapers. He's reflecting on a time when music made him smile, and he had a desire to produce music that would make people dance. Each line of the song gives us more detail and paints a fuller picture. And the songwriter continues to reveal that there was a newsworthy event in February that devastates him. Again, in poetry, we use historical hints to reveal the meaning of the poet's words. So examining the historical context, we know the day the music died refers to the death of Buddy Holly on a plane crash in February 3rd of 1959. So the way that we hear and interpret that song is similar to the way that we hear and interpret the Psalms. Psalm 1 is a poem. And in a brief overview of today's text, we're going to see the contrast of two individuals. Verses 1 and 2 will contrast the individuals. Verses 3 and 4 are going to use imagery, as poems often do, to picture the image of a life centered in the gospel versus what it is not. And then finally, verses 5 and 6 reveal the results of both of their lives. So let's look again and read verses 1 and 2. Starting in verse 1, it says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
So that first phrase, blessed is the man, verse 1 and 2 is the picture of a truly happy person, full of joy and contentment. And why is this man joyful? Because this person guides his life by God's instruction. He meditates on the law day and night. This person does not guide his life by the instruction of those who reject God. So fast forward to today. We live in a world full of self-seeking individuals. Self-help content is now a billion-dollar industry. And, but Psalm 1 simplifies how to live a joy-filled life. What man has made incredibly complicated, the Holy Spirit has made incredibly simple. So what is the simple instruction for a joy-filled life? Verse 1 continues to give us three instructions on what it is not. So verse 1 says, The blessed man walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Because the counsel of the wicked says that God's definition for right and wrong doesn't count for you in your life. We have a conscience given to us by God. Um, it's a built-in moral compass that we possess, hardwired in every human being. Genesis 1:27 says we're image bearers. And as image bearers, Romans 2:15 speaks to image bearers have a conscience. People mar that conscience, but we all have a conscience given to us. Society, or the counsel of the wicked, tries everything it can do in our sin to suppress that conscience. It's shown in common phrases like, show as much skin as you want. If you got it, flaunt it. Sleep with whoever you want. Do whatever makes you happy. Be whatever gender you want. Only you control your own happiness. Dr. Alex Loganaw, a reformed pastor in Sterling Heights, Michigan, <laughs> and sitting in front of me to my right, once summarized all of these phrases in one statement to our elder board. He doesn't know this, but it was like a text he sent about a few months ago, and I just used it, so I'm going to do it. He said this, everyone in Western culture is ingrained to the core with this. No one ever can tell me, no one can ever tell me what to do, including Jesus. It's no coincidence that mental illness is running rampant right now. We as a society are trying as hard as possible to reject the gospel, to reject absolute truth, to reject Jesus. If you come across a friend who's struggling with anxiety or depression, they don't need words of encouragement. They need Jesus in the local church. Words of encouragement, apart from Christ, it's like putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. Pointing them to Jesus gets to the root of the problem. He's the only one that can cure their worry and give them true shalom, that peace, joy, and contentment that we all seek. Because Jesus is sovereign, there's no reason to be anxious. Something is going to occupy the center of your life. Take Christ by faith, center your life around the local church, and you're going to find delight. But look at that last phrase in verse 1. It continues on what does not lead to a joy-filled life. It says, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. 
So a scoffer typically represents a kind of fool, um, one who has rejected the wisdom of God entirely, and he's usually pretty vocal about it. I'm sure we all have those people in our lives. So scoffers is sometimes used synonymously with the word mocker. So it describes a person who is so critical that they have effectively left behind wisdom. And while sitting, as the scripture describes here, while sitting may appear to be less active than those previous verbs of walking and standing, the psalmist is warning us that sitting with scoffers is active is to be active participation in their mocking. To be seated with them is to be one of them. So believer, you're blessed. What does sitting with at the seat of scoffers look like in our life? You're blessed when you speak highly of your spouse and don't join co-workers in that communal bash session talking down about their marriage. Husbands, brag about your wife. Wives, publicly praise your husband. Outside of the fact that it's honoring the Lord, and that's plenty enough, that's the only reason you need, um, logically, I've never understood why people talk bad about their spouse. I've never understood it. Uh, you literally chose to spend the rest of your life with that person. Doesn't that more of a reflection of your own character if you're talking bad about them to other people? You know, just logically it doesn't follow. <clears throat> but then notice back to verse 1, that progression of verbs that I kind of alluded to. Walk, then stand, then sit. You walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit at the seat of scoffers. So following that uh, verb progression, uh, there's a progression of comfort that a person goes through when they're communing with sin. Sin festers within you. It permeates into your life and it builds. You get more comfortable with sin the more you indulge and meditate on it. It's the sequence of a hardened heart. Sin has an insatiable appetite, cannot be satisfied. You cannot get enough of it, and that is why it's impossible to experience joy and be content when you're caught up in sin, if you belong to Christ. Sin starts off by sampling, and as the heart hardens, you begin to get mean in rejection and hate towards Christ. And sin progresses from thought to meditation to action. So this is the call to... Please guard your thoughts. There are no innocent thoughts, as the world may tell you. Look, but don't touch. If you meditate on sin long enough, you'll begin to covet it and eventually act on it. So verse 1 tells us how to not find joy. It seems pretty gloomy. But verse 2 switches to a positive description. Look again at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord... And on his law, he meditates day and night. So, meditation on the law. The law, the Torah, the whole Old Testament, day and night. And meditate here can be interpreted as mutter. Someone muttering. So it's the picture of a man constantly viewing and contemplating his life in light of the gospel. And as we learned this spring, when we were walking through the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the law becomes gospel because the law reveals to us who God is, he's holy, 
cannot commune with sin, and leads us to Jesus. So the law is the Torah, the law and the prophets. And Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. So two weeks ago in class on Davidic covenants, um, Al basically called me a nerd who loves numbers. So let's lean into that for a second. Talking about, which is funny, because I really don't use numbers like in my day-to-day anymore. There's so many people here that use a lot more numbers. But anyway, um, talking about Jesus being the fulfillment of the Old Testament and Old Testament prophecies. So Jesus conservatively fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies. Um, an example of a fulfilled prophecy in Jesus' life, Micah 5.2 was written 700 years before Jesus was born predicted and prophesied that the coming Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So just pause for a second. That would be like you predicting the president of the United States in 2850, the town that he's born in. Okay, so that's just one prophecy that Jesus' life fulfilled. So, and statistics are an interesting thing because they allow for the possibility of anything, even when in reality that Thing is not going to happen. So an example of that would be, statistically, this cup of water, statistically, has some crazy possibility of turning into a chair. Okay, that's not going to happen in real life, but they have to allow for numbers to possible for it, right? So because the stat on one man fulfilling over 300 prophecies that were made hundreds to thousands of years before he existed on earth is like too astronomical to come up with a comparison that our minds can comprehend. Uh, The statistician I read just took the possibility of Jesus fulfilling eight. So not over 300, just eight Old Testament prophecies. Only fulfilling eight prophecies is the equivalent, stats-wise, to filling the entire state of Texas. Who's been to Texas here? Anybody? Yeah. The state of Texas. So you fill the entire state of Texas with silver dollar coins two feet high. Okay? You mark one of those coins red. You blindfold a man, fly him in on a helicopter, drop him wherever you want. He can walk as long as he wants with the blindfold still on. He can walk as long as he wants, but when he bends over and grabs one coin, that coin has to be the one marked red. That's the statistical equivalent of Jesus fulfilling eight Old Testament prophecies in his life. He fulfilled over 300. So statisticians literally cannot create an equivalent that the human minds can conceptualize on what it would be to be over 300. If Christ-centered preaching doesn't convince you the Old Testament is about Jesus, hopefully some of those stats might help. (laughs) But Psalm 1, as a whole, emphasizes the importance that genuine believers embrace the law, the Torah, and heed covenant instruction. Verse 2 talks about delighting in the law and meditating on it day and night. If you love the law, if you love God's word, then you love covenant theology because that is God, how God reveals himself to us in scripture. We just spent a summer Bible hour going through covenant theology. 
Ask my dad and Pastor Alex if you guys want those um, notes. But anyway, um, it's how God communes with his people throughout all of human history. So back in June, Dr. Alex preached on the importance of preaching the word of God. Why? Because the word of God, because God's word, it's effectual. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. The gospel canon, meaning the entire Bible, I know we use some word, words here, the gospel canon just means the entire Bible. The gospel canon can change hearts. It has impact. If you don't believe me, go have five conversations this week using the name Jesus and watch people's reaction. Then tell me the gospel doesn't have an effect. We only know anything because God revealed it to us in his word. Pastor Brett read from the second Helvetic Confession in our historical reading this morning. I won't reread the entire confession, but I want to pull out a few phrases from the end. It says this, The word itself which is preached is to be regarded. The word of God remains still and true. Remains still and true. So to the Israelites in the Old Testament, Psalm 1 meant obeying the laws in the Torah. But to modern Christians, living out Psalm 1 means following Jesus and his commands. And in order to know how to follow Jesus and his commands, Christians need to meditate on the Bible regularly. Do so, you're doing so now, by sitting under the preaching of God's word weekly in the local church, which is his means of grace for Christians today. Turn over to uh, 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'll start in verse 14, and I'm going to read through chapter 4, verse 3. So it's Paul in his letter to Timothy. He says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says this. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So reminder that that chapter 4 verse 3 was written over 2,000 years ago, not last week. The world is always going to preach hellacious things. Why? Because apart from Christ, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. But the church, both 2,000 years ago, today, and every year in between, 
has always warred against the world. To believe the Bible isn't applicable today is blasphemy. Yes, the entire Bible and every word in it is true. And, as 2 Timothy 3.16 just put it, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. But I want to draw our attention to 2 Timothy 3.15 for a second. It says, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Torah, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So, sacred writings was a common way for Greek-speaking Jews uh, to refer to the Old Testament or the Torah. And then connecting, in connecting Psalm 1, uh, verse 2 to 2 Timothy 3.15, Psalm 1 tells us that the blessed man who delights in the law prospers, right? That's what verse 3 we're going to get into in a second says. 2 Timothy 3.15 gives us a clear indication of why he prospers. He prospers because the sacred writings, the law, that Torah, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What could be more prosperous than that? It's faith in Jesus where you can experience true delight and true contentment in life. And the Holy Spirit is intentional to tell us that a biblical walk with God makes life glorious and delightful right now for believers. You know, it's, it's true that we as believers often look to a future glory. I feel like we do that very often. Um, and Psalm 1, for, Psalm 1, 5 certainly speaks towards that future glory and avoiding the judgment, which we're going to get on in a second. But verse 3 tells us in all that he does, he prospers. So the prosperity in this verse is not the alternative prosperity gospel of health and wealth teachings for today. God is working in each of our lives from an eternal perspective. And the man who prospers in everything he undertakes is the one who takes up his cross and follows Jesus. He is the one who is led and guided by the indwelling spirit. He is the one who maintains ongoing fellowship with our heavenly father and presses on the high call of the gospel of Christ. Quite simply, he delights in God's word and God's word produces delight in him. Turn briefly over to Joshua 1. Joshua 1, 8. Joshua 1, verse 8 says this, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to that all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So in Psalm 1, just as in Joshua 1.8, prospering and success is in the Lord, is in what the Lord as creator appoints, not what man as creation makes up as a definition for prosperous and successful. God's definition on how to flourish in this world is antithetical to the counsel of the wicked. As we often see in poems, 
The psalmist uses imagery to drive home his point in verses 3 and 4. So verse 3 positively compares the blessed man to a tree, while verse 4 negatively compares the wicked to chaff. The Bible often uses a tree as a metaphor, um, commonly used to refer in the Old Testament to the nation Israel. And trees don't plant themselves, which is why Pastor Mike has a day job. And neither do sinful people transport themselves into God's kingdom. Salvation is God's marvelous work of grace. A tree planted by a stream of water, as verse 3 tells us, undoubtedly grows and produces leaves because water from the stream provides nourishment to the tree roots. And remember, this metaphor was originally written to an audience in a dry Middle Eastern climate. So a tree not planted near water would quickly die. So meditation on the Torah provides nourishment for your soul rooted in the gospel and local church. And then we move on to verse 4, which refers to the wicked are like chaff. I had no idea what chaff was until I read this one. So, chaff is the straw removed when a farmer tosses threshed wheat in the air. Still didn't understand what it meant after that. So I read one commentary that described chaff as unsubstantial, without value, and worthy only to be discarded. It's lighter than edible kernels of wheat. The psalmist is saying that those who reject God's covenants bring no benefit to anyone, eternally speaking. So verses 3 and 4 contrast a tree with chaff. Think about it. A tree, firm, rooted deep. Chaff, dust, insignificantly blowing in the wind. Psalm 1 continues in verses 5 and 6 to contrast the different outcomes of their lives. Verse 5 starts off with the word therefore, which indicates a move towards a conclusion. Coming out of verse 4, the transition of therefore would indicate a result. It's like saying, because the things in verse 4 are true, verse 5 is the result. I cannot think of a scarier or sadder result for a life than that of verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Judgment is coming. As much as our society hates discussing it, the one thing we're all going to do is die. In a life built apart from God's word, built apart from Jesus, a life that loves one's flesh will not stand in the judgment but rather they will experience eternal damnation in a real place called hell. Verse 6 tells us they will perish. That is bad news. That is the bad news. That apart from taking Christ by faith, you will perish. And God has every right to leave us there, to leave us in that bad news. And Lord, forgive our arrogance if we, as your creation, believe we deserve anything other than your wrath. 
God is holy and just. He cannot commune with sin. We choose sin. We reject God. And we deserve death. But praise God the Father, he did not leave us there. He provided good news. That's the gospel that is found in the Torah. Verse 6 says, the, way, or the Lord knows the way of the righteous because he authored it. Jesus came down. He humbled himself into human form. Think about that. The creator of this universe literally created everything we think of. You know, the, the smartest person you can ever imagine doesn't even scratch the surface of the infinity of what God is. He humbled himself into our flesh form. What he created, he also created time and space that we exist in, that he does not exist in. He humbled himself into that. He came down and took on our flesh and entered time and space. The, Jesus lived the way of the righteous as the perfect example. Jesus is the only one who fulfills Psalm 1. Jesus is the only truly blessed man because he did delight in the Torah, meditating on it day and night. Jesus is the tree planted by streams of water, yielding fruit and not withering away. Jesus is the conquering king and promised son of David's line who sits on the eternal throne. You see, the good news is that if you repent of your sins and take Christ by faith, you will not perish, but you will have everlasting life, John 3.16. And it's, it's really that simple. Please don't overcomplicate this. Now, what does it mean to take Christ by faith? Faith is defined as knowledge, assent, and trust. So knowledge, the first component of that, is simply understanding the components of the gospel. If you've listened to this, you know what the components of the gospel, but I'll summarize. One, God is holy and he cannot commune with sin. Two, man, meaning me, you, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, and we are sinners. And third, through the person and work of Jesus alone, humbling himself into the form of man, born of the Virgin Mary, living the perfect sinless life, dying on the cross, and raising on the third day to defeat death, through him alone can we be saved. So that's the knowledge. It's the easy piece. But knowledge itself will not save you. Knowledge alone leaves you in the state of the demons. James 2.19 tells us that the demons know God exists, and they even tremble at the thought. But they don't trust in him for their salvation. So I need to take that knowledge, and I need to assent to the validity of those claims meaning I need to actually believe those statements of a holy God, I'm a sinner, and Jesus is my intermediary are true. And then finally, trust. Trust is in Christ alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Alone is the key word. Uh, it's not Christ plus whatever I want to do. 
It's also not Christ plus works, as Roman Catholic theology wrongly teaches. It's trust in the gospel. The good news that even though I am a sinner deserving of eternal punishment in hell, Jesus came and lived the perfect sinless life in my place. He delighted in and meditated on the Torah. He did not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit at the seat of scoffers. He died the substitutionary death that I rightly deserve. And he rose on the third day, defeating that death and defeating sin for all those who trust in him alone to save them. So I need to trust in the validity that everything the Bible says about me as a sinner, Jesus as a savior, are true. And that my only hope in life and death is in Jesus' blood alone to save me from my sin, so that I can experience true shalom, praising my risen King Jesus for eternity in a real place called heaven. So just as American Pie reveals the death of Buddy Holly, Psalm 1 reveals to us that judgment is coming. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, but meditate on the word, Take Christ by faith and experience true delight for eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, that through the Holy Spirit, you've given us the word so we can know who you are. We confess that we fall short of your standard, that we have failed the law, and thank you for the law and that it reveals to us our sin and need for a Savior. We pray that if there is anyone in the audience not placing their faith in Jesus alone for their salvation, that today, and maybe even this very moment, would be the day of salvation. And that they would take Christ by faith. We pray for repentance and conviction as we approach the table. And we look forward to the day we dine at this table with you in heaven for eternity. We pray all of this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Church, rise.